My name is Tony Bernhard, and I am a friend and student of Sylvia's for, oh my gosh, ages and ages. And it's very sweet for me to be able to come and, and visit with you guys. I guess I get here, what, a couple times, two, three times a year. <clears throat> and it's, it's just very sweet, and I'm glad to see, uh, to see you this morning. I had my thought about when Sylvia asked me if I could, if I could uh, uh, come this morning, uh, it was going to be a very fortuitous moment. I, my plan was I was going to be on retreat in February. So I thought, oh, this would be great. I'll come and I'll be still in the afterglow of the retreat. And I didn't even have to think about a Dharma talk. I'll just take a seed with me on retreat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, over a month it would, uh, there would be some accretion and I would come up with this wonderful talk and it would be, I just had a great vision. So... <laughs> I started the retreat in February, about the, uh, I guess it was February 1st, which was a Sunday. And I lasted for four days, and then I got a call. My wife had broken her ankle, and she was chronically ill already, so um, I, had to, I had to return home. So I got four days, just, just the part of the retreat where your body is achy, and just when you get past the part where your back is sore and you're... You, you stop falling asleep all the time, and and, uh, and and then I got to watch. It was wonderful. Like actually, I got although, you know, I it was I I was depressed for for a couple of weeks. It was it was tough. Not only did I lose my retreat, but I came home to find my wife in worse shape than she'd been uh, in years. But the the what I saw was depression comes and depression goes. I had no motivation for days and days. I couldn't, you know, but of course I didn't get to do anything because she was pretty much unable to get out of bed. She tried to, to uh, uh, tough it out, but on, by Thursday she couldn't get to the kitchen to feed herself. So that was, that was when she said, okay. And, and my kids were saying, if you don't tell him, he's going to be mad at us. <laughs> But it was interesting to see the the play of uh, uh, mood that came and went, because uh, I sort of knew it was going to go, but it didn't feel like it at the time. <laughs> you know, you tell yourself, "Oh, yeah, it's going to go away." But then, of course, uh, you know, I didn't have this month of wonderful building a Dharma talk for you guys. All I had was the seed. <laughs> and, and the seed that I took with me was pretty interesting. I, it's, something, it's, a, it's a story from uh, the, the uh, life of the Buddha that has stuck with me for years. And I come back to it over and over again, and I thought, well, I'll come back to it again. It's a story that some of you may be familiar with. I actually may have told it here before because um, it's so strong for me. It's, it usually is um, recounted under the title, The Quarrel at Kosambi. And the story is that here's the Buddha with his thousands of monks. I always wonder about those thousands of monks. How does he address the thousands of monks without a PA system? So I'm just not sure. <laughs> You know, whether thousands of monks means a couple dozen or... I just never know. But so he's there with, a, with enough monks 
that they had uh, a couple of leaders in the Sangha. One of them was uh, uh, the expert, the, the master of the teachings, the master of the Dharma. And the other was the master of the Vinaya, of the, the rules of uh, monkish conduct. Now they've got, oh, what is it, 227 precepts that they have? We, we work with five, right? Oh, they got 227. And it includes things like you don't hang your robe on the peg with the, with the seam facing out. Yeah, I mean, it's every aspect of your life is regular. You don't get to run. I mean, things. So there was the master of the Vinaya. And one day, the, uh, you can find the story in the Majjhima. If you want a reference, I can get it for you. One day, the master of the, the teachings uh, left a small dish of water in the latrine. And the master of the Vinaya, the master of the rules of conduct, said, this is, this is a violation. This is, you, you need to apologize and you need to confess. And the master of the Dharma said, oh, are you kidding? This was unintentional. This is not a violation anyway. And the other guy said, yes, it is. No, it isn't. You know. <laughs> and it started going like this. You know, search as a candy mint, search as a breath mint. Uh, that sort of dates me. I'm more fill- <laughs> less, more more taste, less filling. Okay, so, um, and it went on, and, and pretty soon in the sangha they chose up sides, and there was a huge rift, and the news of this came to the Buddha, and and the Buddha called the <clears throat> the contesting parties in to talk to him, and he said, <clears throat> "You guys got to cut this out." And they said, oh, don't worry your sweet little enlightened head about this. We'll take care of it. But of course they didn't. And the, the, the quarrel got deeper and deeper and the rift in, in the sangha got deeper and deeper. And finally, the Buddha left. He went off. He went off to see his cousin, Anuruddha. So I'll, I'll, let's put that on hold. So what happened to these monks? Well, the monks didn't resolve their quarrel, and, and of course, monastics depend on the alms from the village for, for their food every day. So it wasn't long before the villagers noticed the Buddha wasn't around anymore, and they said, you guys, this quarreling has gotten out of hand, and you've driven the Buddha away, and so we're just not so sure that, I mean, no alms for you, sort of like the soup Nazi, you know. <laughs> The alms Nazis. So they said, no alms for you. And then, well, that brought everybody back to reality. The master of the Dharma said, oh, I'm sorry, this was an an offense. Oh, no, 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 said the master. No problem at all, we're okay. So they worked it out. So it was the carrot and the stick, you know, and they, uh, but, but, uh, uh, and and they resolved this by, by the stick. The villagers said, clean it up. When the Buddha said clean it up, it didn't work. Interesting. Interesting. Attachment to your views there was, was the basis. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But this is very much like what our life is like. You know, we sometimes think if we went off into a monastic context, things would just be monastic. <laughs> so meanwhile, the Buddha goes off to visit Anuruddha, who was his cousin, and Anuruddha was living in the forest somewhere with a couple of other 
monks, two or three other monks, I can't remember, it'll say in here. And the Buddha goes to see him and he says, uh, you guys get along? And then he said, oh, yeah. So I'll just read the, I'll just read the section here. He says, um, I hope that you all live in, a, in a Concord, Anaruta, as friendly and undisputing as milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Surely we do, Lord. But, Anaruta, how do you do this? Because he just left, you know, the, the Sangha from <laughs> Kosambi. <laughs> And he says, the Venerable Anaruta replied, Lord, as to that, I think that it is my gain and good fortune for me here that I'm living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain acts and words and thoughts of loving kindness towards them, towards these venerable ones, both in public and in private. And I think, why not, why should I not set aside what I am minded to do and do only what they are minded to do? And I act accordingly. That's just stunning. As a standard for our lives, how would we fare in our home life? Setting aside what we might be minded to do. And do only what the other would prefer to do. It's a pretty high bar. Um, can't say I can uh, see over it all the time, <laughs> but as a as a vision, it's pretty interesting. We've got <clears throat> in this story, we've got the the range of relationships from political squabbling to my gosh, what what kind of how would you even describe? Um, that relationship. You know, we look at the world like these, the monks did. We look at the world and we project ourselves out onto the world. I was visiting with my son and one of his friends and I got into a discussion. He wanted to know about the Dharma and we were talking and talking and finally he said, yeah, but some things are just not okay. Don't we all feel that? Some things are just not okay. And I thought, boy, that is, that's an interesting way to put that. Because the way I read that is, I'm not okay with some things. Because what we do, you know, we, we talk about the world, you know, the, the characteristics of our experience. The Buddha says, it's just not capable of being satisfied. Dukkha is a characteristic of, of our experience of the world. But usually what we say is, well, you know, I'm, sort of, I'm pretty much okay. And we say, I'm pretty much okay. The world is a mess. And we can point to all the things that are messed up. Right? I mean... But really what's going on is, I mean, the world is the way it is. And, our, and judgments about the world are things that we do. And we may judge it differently than someone else. And we certainly do. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, you know, more filling, less taste. 
It can be as trivial as that. It can be that's an infraction. It's not. You know, um, it, the, the stimulus is good. The stimulus is bad. Rush Limbaugh. Any, can, can you even look at someone like that? Can you even think of a person like that without having reactivity? Right. But that's the locus of our suffering, is our own reactivity. The world is the way it is. And I think Sylvia says over and over again, it couldn't be any different. Just because of the way it is, this moment couldn't have been any different because of the way it was just the moment before. And it couldn't have been any different because of the moment before. Things are just the way they are. And our suffering, we project onto the world, our own dissatisfaction. We say there's something wrong out there. Some things are not okay, rather than I'm not okay with some things. And it's the same, it's the same with, with you know, our relationships with other people. And it's not just this one story. There's a, a passage in the, uh, in the Dhammapada, um, where the Buddha says, where the, where the Buddha says, as quoted in the Dhammapada, he says, what others do or do not do is not of concern to me. What I do or do not do is of concern to me. Gil Fransdahl translated that, that same passage this way. Do not consider the faults of others or what they have or haven't done. Consider rather what you yourself have or haven't done. But our tendency, our habit is to look to others. That was an offense. Rather than noticing the impulse to judge, the impulse to cling, to hold on to some standard of how things are supposed to be. In the, the uh, Tibetan mind training, the, the principles of mind training. Uh, number 50, don't be swayed by external circumstances. Although your external circumstances may vary, your practice should not be dependent on that. The practice is focusing on our reactivity, on what we, how we respond, the suffering that we bring to the world that is just the way the world is. I remember passing. Sylvia tells a story about how she wandered by on an early retreat of hers. She wandered by Joseph Goldstein, and she heard a snippet of his conversation where he said, nothing is worth clinging to. And she thought, what great advice. And then she couldn't figure out whether he meant maybe it's worth clinging to nothing. (laughs) 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 Or nothing is worth clinging to. So. I wandered by Sharon Salzberg one time on an early retreat, and, and she was saying, my job is not to be swayed by praise or blame. But of course, that's, you know, that's what others do or don't do, praise or blame. External circumstances. The world is messed up, or it's in great shape. And, and the condition of the world gives us joy or, or chagrin. And our practice focuses, you know, it's like, um, Achan Jumian says it's like the moth and the flame. The moth sees the flame. All the moth sees is the flame. Everything is dark except the flame. But the moth doesn't see its own compulsion 
to fly into the flame. And we don't, we don't even see our own, what we contribute to our own suffering because we, we project it out there. It's out there on the world. Now the fault, dear Brutus, is in ourselves, not in the stars. So if we're looking at our at our um, at our relationships with others, what do we bring to them? You know, I was I was listening a few years ago to uh, um, uh, talk of the nation, you know, what, on what Jack calls the the Duca Channel. And it was it was getting close to it was getting close to to Christmas to the holidays and they were doing a, a series on how to survive the holiday dinner and they had a panel of experts they had the psychiatrist and they had the etiquette person and they had the cook and they yeah they had four or five people and they took calls all the of the whole hour and and people would call up and say oh my mother-in-law always says why don't you get a job and my you know my brother etc whatever you know holiday and everybody was giving strategic advice tactical do you know parry this with that and you know and nobody said at any point don't you be the blockhead at the table you know I mean, it's, it's just amazing because the assumption isn't that we bring anything to the table. But we bring it all. And, and really, what, our, what, our, um, what intentions do we bring you know, to, any, to any relationship, to our relationship with, with the world, to our relationship with our experience? You know, do we meet our experience with friendliness? Or do we grimace? No. And of course, if we grimace, we, there's reasons. We've got reasons, and we can point to them. You know, I'm not saying that they aren't justified. Hmm. Our relationships, the nature of our relationships, the quality of them, is so much a state of mind. We think that it has to do with the way things are, but it's so much a state of mind. My wife has been ill for some years. It's eight years now. And whatever it is she's got presents sort of like a bad case of mono. And so she's housebound and has been for eight years. And, you know, at first it was, it was particularly tough because she was, well, she's isolated. And loneliness. And then, you know, things, things change. You can't stay with that. She came to define her situation as solitude. A different situation. You know, if you, if you look at... So I, I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. You, know, you go to Walden and... Thoreau, and he talks about, he says, I never found the companion that was as companionable as solitude. You know? 
Of course, he also said, I, I went looking for quotes for him, and he also said this, so I don't know quite, quite what to make of that first one. That first one sounds so good, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sounds so, but, but how about this? I have a great deal of company in the house, especially in the morning when nobody calls. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> um, yeah, so solitude is... Um, Paul Tillich said, language has created the word loneliness to express the pain of being alone. And it's created the word solitude to express the glory of being alone. It doesn't have to do with the situation. It has to do with the mind state we bring to it. The reactivity we bring to it. Paul Tillich, he says, language has created the word loneliness to express the pain of being alone. And it's created the word solitude to express the glory of being alone. The other quote that I, that I picked up that I really like was Alan Watts, who said, I owe my solitude to other people. <laughs> so, you know, it's not the condition, it's not the, the situation. And so my wife is, is alone, um, but she's, she's writing, and she's in the process of writing a book on the, the Dharma and solitude and chronic illness. <clears throat> now it depends on what you bring to the situation. You could bring despair. Um, and it's not always your choice. You know, when I showed up, when I showed up back at home at the beginning of February, it wasn't my choice, and I, it was, there was just no way the conditions weren't going to produce sadness in me. But, you know, you hang with it for a while. Um, and not contend with your, with your experience. Not contend with your experience. You know, Here's some, some other statements of the Buddha. I mean, the, the Buddha's standard was pretty high, so I use it as sort of a north star for myself. I mean, I'm not going to get to the North Pole, but I know which way I'm headed. There's this story in the Honeyball Sutta in the Majjhima where Don Dapani, who was also a cousin, but he didn't like the Buddha. He wasn't a fan of the Buddha's. Uh, there was some family dynamics there that was pretty weird because, you know, the, the Buddha's uh, mother died when, she, when he was born, and so he was nursed by his aunt, and uh, his cousin wasn't so happy about that. Um, anyway, so the, there were a lot of interesting family dynamics going on. But Dandapani shows up out in the, in the forest where the Buddha's sitting, and he says, and, and it, just, it describes a great, he clucks his tongue and he says, well, what is the great sage? What kind of a teaching does the great sage present? <laughs> and what kind of a doctrine? And the Buddha said, the sort of doctrine, friend, where one does not contend with anyone in the world. <laughs> <laughs> 
with anyone in the cosmos, with its devas, maras, and brahmas, with its contemplatives, its priests, its royalty, and common folk, where one does not dispute with anyone. Pretty tough. Where do you, where is that? How do you get there? How do you not dispute? What, what kind of a posture do you adopt to not be in contention? In another place, he says, he talks about um, the freedom of release. He says, a monk who's thus released does not take sides with anyone, does not dispute with anyone. Well, I mean, he's saying the same thing in each one of these, in each one of these um, instructions. He says, that, that last one is in Majjama 74. You can go take a look. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great sutta. He says, in a, another place, he says, a bhikkhu who adheres, or a monk who adheres to his own views, holds on to them tenaciously and relinquishes them with difficulty. Such a monk does not fulfill the training. We're like that. With, you know, the heart of delusion is to think we know something. <laughs> you know, it's not about being confused. It's about <laughs> thinking you've got it figured out. And, you know, we all think we're sort of, you know, okay, more or less, don't we? You know, <laughs> you know got some rough edges, but, you know, basically, if the world only... <laughs> So, you know, he's talking about letting go of, you know, search as a candy mint. Or of whatever prejudices we have that lead us to hold one view or another. You know, some of that we just don't want to let go of. I mean, the wonderfulness of our new president, you know, that's, that's that's just a treasure. We don't want to let go of that. You know, renunciation, we know about renunciation. And it doesn't mean it doesn't mean pushing away relationships or the world, just letting go of the clinging that we bring to it. You know, that whatever it is that, that leads us to go, certs is, you know. I, and I've seen this in, 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 in Dharma meetings. I remember sitting in a Dharma meeting once where this conversation, I swear, went on like this. You don't have a self. I do have a self. You don't have a self. I do have a self. <laughs> really. I, I, you know, and the person with the self took herself away and never came back. She <laughs> says, those people are crazy. You know, so you can, be a, you, know, you can be attached and cling and just you know, in the same way. What are we willing to give up for peace of mind? Anything? You know, if what the Buddha is saying is contending with others is the core of our suffering, what are we willing to give up for, for, for the Dharma? What are we willing to give up for peace? I remember Richard Nixon, peace with honor. 
Well, it's that honor part is the sticking point. What is that, what is that really a placeholder for? You know, what are we willing, peace with what? Peace on what terms? What are the terms for peace? What do we need the world to do in order for us to be peaceful with it, to be at peace with it? What do we require of the world? What are we dependent on? What does our peace depend on? If it depends on what's going on out in the world, the conditions of the world, um, good luck. I mean, there, there are, there are, there are, there are stories that are just, just stunning. Um, of you know, the Thich Nhat Hanh tells of being in Vietnam, and and Sister uh, Chan Kam who talks about praying while the bombs are falling on our village. Tough to do, but you know, it's useful to have those models available. Because right understanding, which is the first element of the, of the Eightfold Path, means at least having that guiding star, having a, a notion of what we're working for. What opinions are we willing to let go of? Or maybe not abandon, maybe not say, not to reverse our position on, but just not just to hold them with an open hand. The Dharma eye is an ethical eye. It's not a mistake that the Eightfold Path has right speech, right action, right livelihood in the middle. It's an essential component. It's part of awakening. When you see things as they are, what you see is the suffering of the world. You don't see the world in terms of your own needs. There's a great little aphorism, an Indian aphorism, that I, that I, I just adore, and I probably use it way too much. Sort of like Joseph Goldstein and his story about the Big Dipper. You know, this, the Big Dipper? Joseph says, you know, well, you know the Big Dipper. The stars up there, you know? And he says, but of course there is no Big Dipper, really. <laughs> it's in our mind. And he's told that story, and he's, you know, it's, a, it's an illustration of how the conceptual overlay that we apply to our experience is just a conceptual overlay. So this Indian aphorism goes that I use all the time is, when a pickpocket meets a saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. And he only sees the saint's pockets because that's what he's looking for, because he's got that impulse. He thinks the world is full of pockets. And we're like that. We're really like that. When we look out, we see the world in terms of our, you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, we spend all of our time trying to maximize pleasant experience, minimize unpleasant experience, and figure out how the world relates to me. But if we can look out at the world, clearly just see it as it is without that, without that desire, the ego wanting in the way, well, we see things as they are.
and then we and then um, our action, our speech, are in accord with with the world. So the precepts are an essential um, part of our relationship to others. They're at the heart of our relationship to others. I assume that most of you, are any of you not familiar with the precepts? Not know them offhand? Okay, let me talk about them briefly. Next week, Donald will be doing, um, as part of the, the Wednesday morning group, Donald will be having a, a special, I think it's, 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 it's the second Wednesday, right? The second. the second Wednesday is the precept class, and it meets at 8 o'clock here, and everybody is welcome. Please come, and you can come late, he says. <laughs> he called me this morning. I was in San, I'm on my way, and I'm in, he said, You're, I just want to tell people they can come late. <laughs> The precepts, and, and let me just say a couple things about them because they're misunderstood, really, frequently. The precepts are, they look like, at first blush, they look sort of like the, the Christian commandments. They're not. Um, they're, they're practice, uh, they're vows that we take for the purpose of practice. And they're, they're ethical vows. So let me just run through them really quickly, the ones that lay people take. Uh, taking the precepts. We take them, and what do we do? We take them. Um, usually the, the phrasing can be different in a lot of, of contexts, but I usually uh, relate to them this way. For the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from taking life. For the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from taking what is not freely given. For the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from harmful sexuality. For the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from speaking falsely. And the fifth one, which is, there's an interesting ambiguity in the fifth one, so I'm going I'm to say it in both ways. For the purposes of practice, I vow to refrain from alcohol and drugs which cause heedlessness. Or, I vow to refrain from the use of alcohol and drugs to the point of heedlessness. <laughs> but there's a tendency to see, to, because our conditioning is so deep that these are rules, they're behavioral rules, and if you break a precept, I don't know whether you really can break a precept, if you break a precept, there's maybe a moral ding of some kind that uh, shows up on your soul or something. But it's not like that. These are, these are resolves that we take for the purpose of practice, for the purpose of enlightening ourselves and for providing protection to others. I'll give you an example of how this works. The precept that I've been working with for... I, I was thinking about this last night. It's been 40 years now. I took a class from John Cage who was uh, a crazy composer of the mid-20th century uh, and very deeply steeped in Zen, hung out with, oh my gosh, he hung out with D.T. Suzuki in New York and with all of the, of the abstract expressionist painters. If you wonder what they were doing, they were painting the Dharma. Uh, they all were, Jackson Pollock and Jasper Johns and all those, Rothko and all those people. Anyway, so, so he was teaching this 
this class, um, he was at UC Davis, and he was, uh, I was really lucky, got into the class, and he said at one point, he said, a minimum ethic, do what you say you're going to do. And I, I don't know, what was I 40 years ago? 20 years old or so? And I thought, boy, that's really interesting. For some reason, it just grabbed me. And I just, I just resolved that, that I was going to do that. Well, it's got some interesting side effects. If you resolve to do that, then you say, yeah, I'll do something, and then you change your mind. But you've already said you're going to do it, regardless of what, how you change your mind, you do it. So it makes you pay way close attention to everything you offer to do. And you don't offer to do something you're not ready to commit to do. It's just, it was, it's been a transforming thing for me. These other precepts work the same way. I vow to refrain from speaking falsely. Well, this is not a law. This is not something, it's not a matter of judgment. It's, these, these ethics for Buddhism are contextual. And it requires sati, mindfulness. Mindfulness is also part of the Eightfold Path. It's essential. The Nazis knock on the door. Anne Frank here? Oh, yeah, I can't tell a lie. She's up in the attic behind the fake bookcase, you know? <laughs> you know, it's contextual. It's not a rule about breaking or not. It's about guiding your behavior and showing yourself the impulse that you want it's not about what you want, but it shows you what you want and how what you want, it just brings it to the fore. I've, I vow not to take life. Well, what about the rats in the attic? The ants. The ants. Well, we, we give the ants fair warning. We give them a couple days and we put up little notes and we go and lecture them. <laughs> and we also clean up. But, you know... And you see what, you see what, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an inside practice. The precepts are inside practices as well as ethical practices. The Dharma eye is an ethical eye. You know, ethics are about, about doing. And a lot of the, a lot of the, um, a lot of the Dharma words are about doing and not, they're not things. But ethics is wisdom in action, really, at the heart, and our relationship to others. Um, it's not a mistake that the Buddha uses the phrase often, the bliss of blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness, that's, you know, he's talking about the bliss of awakening, blamelessness. The ethical eye is the Dharma eye. The Dharma eye is the ethical eye. They're, they're, you know, your, the quality of your ethical behavior will, will reflect your understanding, the depth of your understanding. <clears throat> the precepts are about, they're not about what you do. They're not about what you do. Not killing. You can be in a prison cell 
and not killing anybody, that's not going to save you. You can be not killing anybody anywhere. It's not going to save or not, you. Can be, what's going to save you is the intention to not take life. And the precepts are about that intention. What intention do you bring to a relationship? What intention do you bring to your experience? Our relationship is the intention we bring. Really is the intention we bring. Intention to not be the blockhead at the table. (laughs) So elements of practice. For practicing, we want to focus on our reactivity, our own you know, how we respond, how we, what we bring to the table, not what the table looks like. I mean, we could, have been, we could have been born under the rule of Genghis Khan, for crying out loud. Somebody was. And they probably grumbled about things, too, different things. You know? And they had their Rush Limbaugh's and all the rest. They had to navigate a different, it was a different world. We'd have trouble in their world, they'd have trouble in ours. But the world is not set up to bring us satisfaction. So when I think of the kinds of practice that we can do to try to focus ourselves, focus our attention on what we bring to the table, precept practice is is right there. It's right at the heart. Also, the Brahma-Vihara practice, the practice of cultivating uh, metta, loving kindness, or just a friendly relationship to our experience and to others. Just friendliness. John Peacock, one of, one of uh, a teacher, uh, actually a British scholar uh, who I studied with recently, maintains that um, metta practice is a full practice of awakening. It is not a secondary practice. That, and he, you know, he says it's in the it's in the it's in the scriptures, but that somehow, um, the wisdom practices became the purview of the monks, and the monks were sort of, you know, they sort of relegated the more feminine practices to second tier. But he says meta practice is an insight practice. If you try to conjure loving kindness towards someone who just gets on your nerves, what shows up for you will be all the things that stand in the way of love. Sharon Salzberg says love is so powerful. When you try to conjure it, it just brings up everything that stands in its way. So the Brahma-Vihara practices, along with the precept practices, They're all inside practices. And then, of course, you know, I would would also uh, tout study. You know, just paying attention, right understanding. You know, when the Buddha says, don't despise any being in any state. You know, I'm just a student on this path, so I take his word and I say, okay, that's, that must be right understanding. I don't get it, 
I got to work with that. So if I find myself despising some being in some state, and I catch myself doing it, I'm not so caught up in what a jerk that person is. I can sort of say, oh, I've got to work with this, something to work with. Non-contention. Doesn't dispute with anyone. So, you know, bringing some attention to studying the Buddha's teachings is helpful because the first, the first step of the Eightfold Path is understanding. Our intentions flow directly from our understanding. They don't flow from any place else. If you, if you, you know the story, you, you think you see, a sn- you see a snake on the, on the road and you jump back, your intention to get away because what you saw, you're understanding a snake and then you see it's a rope, it's a coil of rope. And you say, oh, silly me. And your intention changes. It comes with the, un- with, just watch yourself. You're, the intention will flow from the understanding what you think you're doing. The world looks like pockets, you know, to the pickpocket. So study and ethical behavior and cultivation of, of the Brahmaparas, the practice, to bring our attention to what we bring to the table, not to the world. Yeah. It's just amazing. I just, I just find Anaruta's comment amazing. Why not set aside what I am minded to do and do only what they are minded to do? What a challenge. How, see how much we cling to our own desires, how much we, the, we cling to the things we want. So let's take a couple of minutes. I kind of expected you guys to interrupt me during the, during the talk. Right? So I don't know. What do you think of all that? Please. I find Rush Limbaugh the hardest thing I can look at right now in my life. And I could think of every pretext effect of all the things that I just lose. Yeah. You know, Sylvia's talk, I had a practice for some years, and he's, she's talked about my practice uh, at times. Yeah, yeah, it's now, it's now a famous practice. I, I set up, uh, I listened to him and to Michael Savage for, for, for several years, and I would do it as I left work. And I, you know, would be on the radio, and my my the rule to my practice was to listen to him. And as soon as I got reactive, turn the radio off. <laughs> and it became real clear I wasn't getting to the end of the block <laughs> on my way home. And so I had a goal for maybe for four or five months to get to the freeway entrance with the radio still on. <laughs> but after a while, you know, um, it's just it's. I, it, it's maybe it's deconditioning or whatever. Um, yeah, he's very he's very challenging, uh, but he's he is not a happy camper. And when we see him in terms of our own views, our own wishes and wants, boy, do we not want him? Okay, so I'm a politician. I'm happy to have him represent the Republican Party. <laughs> and I and I am so impressed. Oh my gosh, I'm off the Dharma track here. But I am so impressed <laughs> with 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 uh, our president and his team, and that they, they have seen this as an opportunity. The polls show 
that at that CPAC conference last, last week, 8% of the people there thought that Obama's doing a good job. The rest think he's not. Mm -hmm. And the public generally, it's over 70%. They are so out of touch. Make him the poster boy. Does that help? <laughs> <laughs> Please. Years ago, I read it someplace, in that, and uh, you know, we live in a democracy, uh -huh. and it's, we have our freedom of choice. It's real easy when all of you think my way, mm -hmm. but when you get somebody who thinks the opposite, but you know, that's why we live in this, and that's why you don't get shot on the corner for saying you know, Obama's doing a good job or bad job. Yeah. You know, and I, I listened to um, Rush, um, whatever his name, last couple nights ago, and I remember, remember when the movie Da Vinci Code came out? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, everybody was up in arms. Certain people were up in arms. And people had lost their religion because of it. And I kind of put that group of people with him. And well. A, a movie from Hollywood and you would lose your religion. You wouldn't have a lot there in the first place. It's our uh, own, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's what happens out there. It's what people do. Mm -hmm. And if you, don't, if you don't have a dog in the fight, you can actually watch it and see how people work. Mm -hmm. You know, we cling to the things to our opinions, to our ideas, and we go to war over them. It's an offense. It's not an offense. You know? Please. I found a really um, helpful expression of this idea that you're talking about in a companion practice in the Eckhart Tolle book with the long mm -hmm. title that I can mm -hmm. never remember the name, the name of the book, mm -hmm. where he tells the great story about Krishnamurti um, giving a talk and some of his students who have been there for 20 or 30 years are all excited because he starts out saying, do you really want to know my secret? And they all have their pens ready. And, <laughs> and he says, I don't mind what happens. And that was yeah. the end of the talk. <laughs> did, did everybody hear that? That's, that's been a guiding thing for me, too. I don't mind what happens. And the follow-up practice is asking yourself every day, every minute of every day, um, what's my relationship to this moment? Yes. And as a practice for the last couple of weeks, I've been Constantly, you're in contention with everything, even if you're generally a kind of right. happy, upbeat person. There's always that evaluative sort of it is. mode. It's really revealing. My wife, I was talking with my wife about this um, last night, and, and she said there's the house next door has a little uh, f f attic fan that whirls around in the wind, and it squeaks. <laughs> and and she when when she sits, the, uh, the squeaking is going on. And she, she recalled a, a phrase from Achan Shah who said, the world is just doing, is just expressing its nature. We go out and bother that squeak. <laughs> you know, yeah. Did, did, did you, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I saw the hand, yeah. What that woman said about, um, it, 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 I'm not attached to the outcome. Speaking of politics, that's sort of how I look at Obama. I mean, Obama, he, he, you know, he wants certain things to happen, but there's something about him that's, that's, that doesn't have the ego that a lot most other politicians have. So that he, I get the sense that he's like, I'm doing the best I can, but if it doesn't work, then I've done the best I can. And I'll and try I'll, something else. And I'll be okay with that. Yeah. You know, well, whereas, and, and, it's very interesting to, to watch. Well, he does strike me as, as remarkable, and I like the parties at the White House. <laughs> <laughs> they, did, you, did any of you guys see this, the Stevie Wonder party? No. 
Unbelievable. Unbelievable. They, I, I just have, there they are in this, it was at the Washington room, there's George, this, this 15-foot portrait of George, and the 15-foot part, part is Martha, is his wife? You know, and there they are, and the room is full of all these people, and I'm thinking, and Stevie Wonder and his band, I'm looking at these musicians saying, boy, I bet they never thought they were going to be in the White House. And, and, when they pl- and Stevie came out and he sang, signed, sealed, and delivered, and uh, superstition. And the place was rocking, and I thought, oh my gosh, I've died and gone to heaven. So... <laughs> Yeah. Dinner last weekend. It's a different world. (laughs) Yeah. Talk about not attached and Barack Obama. He actually said, I'll do the best I can. We'll try this. We'll change. We'll try something else. It's been four years. It's not working. Vote me out. Notice how we like that. We love it. Just notice how we like that. There's some people who don't like that. It doesn't have anything to do with what he's saying. It has to do with us. We, it has to do with us. And, and the more clearly we see that, you know, the more likely we can be free. Because it's that clinging you know, um, that, that brings our suffering, that traps us. On the other hand, I know what you mean. (laughs) Any other thoughts or comments or questions? Yeah. The story about the two monks who lived together and got Uh along well Uh reminded me in my personal situation with relationship that I felt like the first time that a relationship failed and I realized that it was that contention that Uh had caused the rift. I thought, oh, I've learned a lot. I won't contend anymore. The next relationship, what I did was very interesting as I look back on it, is when I would see something about my partner that I didn't like, that I didn't think was worth bringing up, you know, and I made a judgment about that, I wouldn't. But I would sit there and stew. I I look at him and I go, I just hate it when he, whatever he is, you know, whatever he's doing, and never said a word about it. But how damaging that was to the relationship. It took me a long time to realize, and I really let myself do it. I go, you know, you're not saying anything. You're doing so good. Yeah. Um, so it's not only what you put out, but what you hold in. It's it's just to notice that attachment. Christopher Titmus says, you know, if you find yourself saying, let go, let go, let go, you've missed the boat. <laughs> because really what's going on is you're holding on, and you should be noticing what that clinging is like and what it feels like, you know. And that judgment, judgment is just a mask for for clinging, for the preference we've got that we cling to. We clothe it in judgment and make it universal. And, yeah, it's it's a wonderfully inspiring story, and uh, let's let ourselves off the hook for not living up to it. (laughs) 
But it does show us, it does show us where our, our desires, where our clinging is, Joe. Yeah. Well, I was just going to uh, relay that Sylvia told the story uh, the day after the election about her friend uh, up near where she lives, who, you know, who had the sewing uh, mm-hmm. store. And she was so excited about the election, but she went in and the two women were talking and they were devastated. It was a completely, oh, it yeah. was a completely different view. And so I think that's just something for all of us to hold. And, and to kind of not, to just kind of know sometimes, um, um, and I have, you know, I have many friends who have a different view, even though, you know, so it's, it's um, just something to be mindful of, but it, like you always say, it's views and opinions, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, the trick is not, there's no view or opinion that will set you free. Right. No getting the right thought words lined up, right, that will liberate you. you know, it's not knowing the right thing. Ignorance is something we do. <laughs> it is. It's something we do. If we seek satisfaction in the things of the world, knowing that it's not going to happen, you know, we're going to get what we... Yeah. I heard the uh, uh, saying of I don't mind what happens in different ways here. Uh-huh. With, with your story over there, she was taking that in with her relationship of not minding what happened, but inside there was a part of her that was really minding what happened. <laughs> so it's a dangerous expression if you don't, if you're not truly honest with yourself, which is very difficult to be because there's always little nooks and crannies in there. <laughs> of, uh, you know, I don't care what happens. Yeah, but except she said that. And, <laughs> yeah, light me right up. So I try that practice. I can look at that like I'm watching the TV and see that, and I don't mind what happens, but I hear a part that just wants to sock somebody right in the nose <laughs> who does care what happens. And sure. that's a very hard way to, that's a very hard thing to live to. Well, it's not so much, it's not so much um, something to set up as a standard to judge yourself by. It's more of a direction. It's a directional thing. It's like seeing the top of the mountain and saying, okay, I'm headed there. You know. and, and when you find yourself not heading in the right direction, you just notice and say, oh, what's going on here? It's an opportunity for, for discovery. So I thank you guys so much for your attention. I I think I'm back here in June, so I'll see you then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.